reading from the book of Joshua. Now when Joshua was near Jericho, he looked up and saw a man standing in front of him with a drawn sword in his hand. Joshua went up to him and asked, Are you for us or for our enemies? Neither, he replied, but as commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. Then Joshua fell face down to the ground in reverence and asked him, What message does my Lord have for his servant? The commander of the Lord's army replied, Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. Now Jericho was tightly shut up because of the Israelites. No one went out and no one came in. Then the Lord said to Joshua, See, I've delivered Jericho into your hands, along with its king and its fighting men. March around the city once with all the armed men. Do this for six days. Have seven priests carry trumpets of ram's horns in front of the ark. On the seventh day, march around the city seven times with the priests blowing the trumpets. When you hear them sound a long blast on the trumpets, have all the people give a loud shout. Then the wall of the city will collapse and the people will go up, every man straight in. So Joshua, son of Nun, called the priests and said to them, Take up the ark of the covenant of the Lord and have seven priests carry trumpets in front of it. And he ordered the people, Advance, march around the city with the armed guard going ahead of the ark of the Lord. When Joshua had spoken to the people, the seven priests carrying the seven trumpets before the Lord went forward, blowing their trumpets, and the ark of the Lord's covenant followed them. The armed guard marched ahead of the priests who blew the trumpets, and the rear guard followed the ark. All this time, the trumpets were sounding. But Joshua had commanded the people, Do not give a war cry. Do not raise your voices. Do not say a word until the day I tell you to shout. Then shout. So he had the ark of the Lord carried around the city, circling it once. Then the people returned to camp and spent the night there. Joshua got up early the next morning, and the priests took up the ark of the Lord. The seven priests carrying the seven trumpets went forward marching before the ark of the Lord and blowing the trumpets. The armed men went ahead of them, and the rear guard followed the ark of the Lord, while the trumpets kept sounding. So on the second day they marched around the city once and returned to the camp. They did this for six days. On the seventh day they got up at daybreak and marched around the city seven times in the same manner, except that on that day they circled the city seven times. The seventh time around, when the priest sounded the trumpet blast, Joshua commanded the people, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city. The city and all that is in it are to be devoted to the Lord. Only Rahab the prostitute and all who are with her in her house shall be spared, because she hid the spies we sent. But keep away from the devoted things, so that you will not bring about your own destruction by taking any of them. Otherwise, you will make the camp of Israel liable to destruction and bring trouble on it. All the silver and gold and the articles of bronze and iron are sacred to the Lord and must go into his treasury. When the trumpet sounded, the people shouted. And at the sound of the trumpet, when the people gave a loud shout, the wall collapsed. So every man charged straight in, and they took the city. They devoted the city to the Lord and destroyed with the sword every living thing in it, men and women, young and old cattle, sheep, and donkeys. Joshua said to the two men who had spied out the land, go into the prostitute's house and bring her out and all who belong to her in accordance with your oath to her. So the young man who had done the spine went in and brought out Rahab, her father and mother and brothers and all who belonged to her. 
they brought out her entire family and put them in a place outside the camp of Israel. Then they burned the whole city and everything in it. But they put the silver and gold and the articles of bronze and iron into the treasury of the Lord's house. But Joshua spared Rahab the prostitute with her family and all who belonged to her because she hid the men Joshua had sent as spies to Jericho. And she lives among the Israelites to this day. At that time, Joshua pronounced this, this solemn oath. Cursed before the Lord is the man who undertakes to rebuild the city of Jericho. At the cost of his firstborn son will he lay its foundations. At the cost of his youngest will he set up its gates. So the Lord is with Joshua, and his fame spread throughout the land. This is the word of the Lord. I'm Carl Hetler. Uh, you may know me more as a Mr. Rogers, uh, but our family is all in here at the Livingstones Church. And we're continuing our series on Joshua learning about this unstoppable God. And I like the train metaphor, so I want to ask you a question. What train are you on? Where is your life headed? What destination are you aiming for? Maybe it's pleasure, money, ease, grandkids. But if you say wanted a life of worship, is that even possible? Could you get on the train to worship? What could you do? What would it look like? We've just sung some songs that painted the portrait of worshiping, of a God who is worthy of our worship. But what does it mean to live that out? Not just for half an hour here on Sunday, but throughout the week, in every area of our life, in my life, in your life. As we look at Joshua chapter 5 and 6, we're going to see that the train to God's peace, the train to God's joy, requires us to step on board for an exhilarating yet ridiculous adventure. Worship starts with obedience. A life of worship is born out of obedience. And we're going to look at four perspectives of these events in Jericho to understand what it means that worship starts with obedience. First, consider Joshua. Here's the leader, ready for battle. He's got 40,000 men who have crossed the Jordan River with him who are ready for battle. He's got his invasion force, his, his surge. But before he can go into battle, he needs to learn to worship better. Worship starts with obedience. If you read earlier in chapter 5 of Joshua, you find out that God has had them do this ritual of circumcision, cutting the foreskin off of all the men. Now, this is a painful uh, practice. So these guys are not in fighting shape. They're all bent over. They're in pain. They're probably whimpering in their tents. They are in no shape to go out and fight a battle. But because worship starts with obedience, they have to learn to put God first, even if it seems to harm their battle tactics. In a lot of ways, this is similar to what Moses went through. If you think back to his life, he first experiences God as a burning bush. While he's a shepherd for his father-in-law, God appears to him and tells him, take off your sandals, because the place where you're standing is holy. It's special. It's set apart. And so Moses, in the same way, is humbled when he realizes that he has to get in the proper position before God. He has to put himself beneath God. And the parallels between Moses and Joshua show us that there are similarities for them as leaders. This need to be humble. This need to recognize that they've come beneath God. That worship starts with obedience. But Joshua asks his question to this angel, well, whose side are you on? Are you on our side or are you on the side of Jericho? And the angel has to reorient his categories and say, I'm not on either side. I'm on God's side. Sometimes we want God to fight our battles for us. And it's humbling to recognize it's not about getting God on our side, but instead it's about getting on God's side and figuring out where God would have us be. Here's a picture from uh, artist Michael Godfrey of what Jericho might have looked like back in Joshua's days. 
you see the walls, you see the hills off in the distance, the defenses that they had. This is what Joshua was facing. And so he came to God wanting instructions, wanting to see how God was going to use him. But just like we saw last week with the River Jordan, God is in charge. God who is, is the one who is at the lead. It's not about Joshua being up front. You're not going to see Joshua leading the charge into battle. You're not going to see him waving a sword or giving some moving speech like Mel Gibson in Braveheart or Russell Crowe in Robin Hood. No, Joshua has to learn to humble himself as a leader. That God is the one who's going to win this battle. Maybe you remember uh, singing the song as a kid, Joshua fit the battle of Jericho. Uh, next picture is of the ruins of modern-day Jericho, what was left. The song, though, Joshua fit the battle of Jericho, is completely wrong. Uh, fit being an old English word for fought. Joshua didn't fight at all. Joshua went for a walk for seven days and then hollered at the top of his lungs at the end. No, no God fit the battle of Jericho, if you want to sing it correctly. And it's amazing to think about, because Joshua humbled himself, God was able to do something amazing like this. And in fact, the, the letter to the Hebrews in the New Testament makes reference of this in talking about faith. Verse 30 says, By faith the walls of Jericho fell after the people marched around them for seven days. Joshua did his job, did his job but took trusting God, having faith, trusting a God he couldn't see, trusting that this God was stronger than these walls that he could see. And the result of all this is that his fame expands. By the end of chapter 6, Joshua ends in a similar place as last week, where his fame spreads, not for his intelligence, not for his handsomeness, not for his charisma, but his obedience. Worship starts with obedience. Right now, there are 5,000 believers uh, gathered in South Africa from six continents at a Lausanne 2010 conference. And one of the speakers there has challenged the church to consider what it means to be humble. That too often, the Western church here in America has given in to culture, to modernity, and that we need to learn to ask God for the humility that we've lacked in the past century. It takes humility to follow God, to let Him lead. And so we consider that God is unstoppable, that our theme throughout this book of Joshua is how God is unstoppable, makes us realize what we need from our leaders then is people who will listen, people who will start worshiping in obedience and who will be humble. Sam, we spread your fame because of that humility that you live out, not for your handsomeness or your charisma, but for your love of the South Side, your love of us, and your desire to spread that love to other people. For Jim and Jim and Jeff, as well as Greg and Chuck and Randy, those are the qualities we need in you guys as well. Worship starts with obedience. So if you're called to lead, remain faithful and humble. That's what we need, and that's what ancient Israel needed as well. The second perspective I want you to consider is being an Israelite. This is an ordinary Israelite who's come out of Egypt, seen your parents die off, and now you're getting ready to enter into the promised land. Joshua gets the plan. He's the leader. He comes back to you, and he says, here's the plan, guys. We're going to walk. That's the plan against the city, Jericho. We're going to walk around it. Now, that's ridiculous. That would be my response. We've just been injured through circumcision. We're in no condition to fight a battle. We go and walk around this town for a couple of days. They're going to make fun of us. They're going to mock us. They might try to hurt us. I think of VeggieTales and uh, their take on Josh and the big wall with the slushies that the, uh, the Jerichoites uh, dropped on them. And I love the little French peas from that, you, if you remember them. Oh, look at Jean-Claude. The vegetables are walking around the wall. They are so silly. 
That's probably what's happening to Joshua. I can understand why they would say this is ridiculous. But worship starts with obedience. So we have to consider what ridiculous things Joshua and the Israelites had to deal with. But we also have to consider for ourselves, what are the ridiculous things that we think God is asking of us today? You mean I have to sacrifice for my, for my wife when all she does is complain? Why should I listen to my husband when he can't even get a job? How does how I spend my money matter to God? What do you mean my thoughts affect my heart? That's ridiculous. Worship starts with obedience. It may seem ridiculous to us, but we have to consider what God is calling us to. Paul, in one of the other letters he writes to the church in Corinth, has this to say about being ridiculous. The NIV uses the word foolishness. He says in uh, chapter 1, verse 18, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. There's a foolishness to following Christ. The Apostle Paul is up front about this. If you're looking for a deep mathematical formula for salvation, you're not going to find it here. If you're looking for some mystical incantation to recite, that's not what Jesus is about. There's a power that comes from being foolish, from being able to trust God, to put our faith in Him. And that's why worship starts with obedience. And the result of obeying what to us seems ridiculous is that the walls fall. They're ruined. All that's left are rocks and stones for archaeologists to study and discover. It's ridiculous, but God blesses it. Where do you need to follow God, even when it seems ridiculous? Your marriage, your money, your mind? It may seem ridiculous. Worship starts with obedience. And we all need to face our resistances. For, for a third perspective, put yourself inside Jericho. They were resisting God. They've put up their defenses. They've locked the doors. They've got their gates that are barred and closed off. There's no way of getting in or out of the city. They've got people up on the walls ready to protect them. And they're ready in case they try to bring ladders up to climb over the walls. They're probably ready. The Israelites try to throw fire over. They're ready with their water in case the Israelites try to starve them out. They've got all their food stored up there as well. They're ready. They've got their defenses all set. They've heard about this group of rebellious slaves, nomads who have been lost in the desert. These beaver people who dammed the river and somehow got across. These cutters who enjoy bloodletting and Jericho wants no part of them. They are resisting in every way possible. Jericho was an important city. It was named after one of the ancient moon gods because it was on this, this main city in the Fertile Crescent there in the Middle East. Archaeologists have actually discovered there's this oasis of water underneath the, the city ruins where this natural spring could bubble up. So you get water in this dry and, and parched area. And many of the roads going down to Egypt, up to Assyria and Babylonia, went through Jericho. This is an important city. And they were going to allow themselves to be taken over. So what happened? Was it an earthquake? I don't think so. Was it tremors caused by marching? No. It really was a miracle of God. God did something amazing that day in the plains of Jericho. But then maybe as people of Jericho, we have to ask ourselves this question, well, why does everything get destroyed? Why do we all get wiped out? Some theologians have thought that maybe it was so the people could remain pure, or maybe so God would remain central. But I think it also has something to do with fulfilling the promises of God. Back when God first made his promises to Abraham, to give him children, to this 90-year-old guy, 
he probably not give him descendants, but give him land to live in as well. That land of, of Canaan. This is what he says in Genesis 15, 16. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here. For the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. The Amorites were one of the groups living there in Canaan. The people there in that land, around Jericho. And so what God is showing is that not only does he keep his promises, but he is a gracious God as well. He could have given Abraham the land right away. But he said, no, Abraham, I'm going to make you wait. There are people living here, and, and though they're not following me, though they're disobedient, I'm going to be patient with them. He ends up giving them over 400 years to turn to him, to show his graciousness and his patience to them. And God says it's only at that point when they've used up all of my mercy, all of my patience, that then I would be willing to cast them out of the land and give this land to you, Abraham. And so Abraham has to wait and trust God's promises. Joshua's had to trust God's promises as well. He had to trust in chapter 1 we saw that he had to trust that God would be there with him through all these battles. Abraham, Joshua might have been scared. He might have been afraid. But so God said, I will be with you. So be courageous. Don't be afraid. So God keeps his promises, but he even keeps his promises to those who don't follow him. And the result of that is that an entire city is destroyed, ruined, broken down. Now, I'm from California, and so I've had to learn moving here to the Midwest about trains, because we didn't have that in the Bay Area where I grew up. And uh, one time I was up in Chicago, and I'm driving behind someone trying to get to my meeting, and I see the, the train cross and the lights start flashing. But I figure we've got enough time that we'll be able to get through it. But this car stops right there. And I'm like, forget this. So I zip around them, go over the tracks. The gates are coming down and come back down around the gate. And you'll make it just in time before the train comes. And uh, that's pretty dangerous. That's not a smart thing to do. Because you read in the paper all the time about people getting killed by these trains. Trains are unstoppable. Uh, much like God, if you try to park yourself in front of a train, bad things are going to happen. And unfortunately for Jericho, they thought that they could stand in front of that train, that they could get around that crossing, that all these warning lights going on about God is doing something, they chose to ignore and stand in the path of. And so we have to face the reality that God keeps his promises. So please don't doubt the promises of God, especially if you identify best with Jericho tonight. Maybe you're putting up your defenses. You've locked the door off to God, closed off any entryway. Maybe you think you don't need Jesus. Or just that you can avoid him. But if Jesus is who he says he is, then we must all decide what to do with him. We either follow him or we face him. And that's what Rahab had to consider. So fourthly, I want to consider the viewpoint of Rahab. Because she's taking a risk here. I remember one time I got in a train at Union Station. And uh, the ticket clerk told me what track to go down to. But when I went down to that track, I didn't see any sort of sign on the train. So I had to get on and take a risk. This is the right train to get on based on her advice. But I pulled out my map so that as we pulled out of the station and started going to different stops, I could check and see was I headed in the right direction, were these are the stops that, in fact, I wanted to be going towards to get to my destination. I think it's kind of the same way here with Rahab. Because here she is in Jericho, wondering what's going to happen. Oh, sorry, never mind, go back. We're not there yet. She's in Jericho, wondering what's going to happen, and she has to take a risk. She has to trust that these stories that she heard, in fact, are going to come true. We have no idea what led her to trust in a foreign God that she couldn't see. She had no idea about this God. She'd heard stories, 
she saw the walls in front of her. She saw these walls to protect her. But she decided, am I going to trust this God that I've heard stories about? And, and imagine what her family thought when she informed them. They're like, what are you talking about, Rahab? The city of Jericho, there's not going to be a problem with it. We're going to be safe here. But she somehow convinces them to come inside her house with her, to hang this red rope out of her window. And then you wonder what the neighbors are thinking. Why don't rumors start going around? And what's Rahab doing, hiding out? Why isn't she part of the, the city patrols? What, what's her whole family doing in there? Has she turned against us? And then, imagine you're Rahab, having made this decision, taking the step of faith, this risk. And then you hear this rumbling noise. Then you hear the walls come t- tumbling down. Dust billowing up everywhere, covering your windows, coming in under your doors. If you've seen videos from 9-11, you can imagine how terrifying it would be to see walls come crashing down. Walls that you thought provide you security. Walls that you thought were always going to be stable and, and there and strong are no more. And, and then you hear the armies come rushing in. You hear the clatter of metal as weapons uh, fight. And you hear the screaming, the yelling uh, of people, blood-curdling screams as people die around you outside your house. And then animals bellowing. And then silence. Nothing at all. Until finally... There's a at your door. And those people you took a risk to hide, those people you reached out to, putting your faith in God, are there on the other side of the door. And they take you and your family out and rescue you. Rahab found that she was headed in the direction of worship because it started with obedience. Maybe you want to leave your old life behind as well to put your trust in this scarlet rope this red cord. Uh, What we celebrate at communion reminds us of that red cord, the the blood of Jesus, is what allows us to be rescued, to be rescued out of our dire circumstances. The result for Rahab was safety, a place for family, and even a role in God's plan. And the author of Hebrews goes on, after talking about Jericho, to talk about Rahab and her faith as well. Here we go, now verse 31. By faith, the prostitute Rahab, because she welcomed the spies, was not killed with those who were disobedient. And even Matthew, when he's starting his biography of Jesus, and he wants to lay out the credentials, the history of Jesus' lineage, has this to say about some of the people. There was Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed, the father of Jesse, the father of King David, which leads us to Jesus, a a descendant of King David. Part of the, the scandal of Christianity is that the Savior can name a prostitute in his lineage. But God does amazing things when we're obedient. Rahab demonstrated faith, something that you can't see, because worship starts with obedience. Our growth group this fall has been talking about what it means to take small steps of obedience, to see what we can see around us, the experiences we've had, and then trust to go with God somewhere that we can't quite see yet that we don't completely understand. Rahab had heard about a wandering people who had been provided for in the desert. She'd heard about these former slaves who were conquering kings on their other side of the river. And she took a step of faith. What's the small step that you need to take this evening? Worship starts with obedience. God's grace is, is unstoppable. And it can overcome whatever struggles you faced. The, the grace of God that saved Rahab that led to the coming of the Savior Jesus, is available to us. 
to us who are angry, jealous, bitter, lazy, self-centered, we put our trust in his scarlet blood. To us who have yelled, cursed, lied, manipulated, we put trust in the red rope. Our past divorces, abortions, fights, drugs are broken down by God's grace. As Sam mentioned last week, if crossing the Jordan into Gilgal was Israel's Philadelphia, then this is similar to America's Lexington. It's conquered. The the first victory, when God shows that he is unstoppable, that he is going to provide for them, he's going to fulfill the promises that he's made to them, The, the advance of the land that has been promised to them, God is unstoppable, and we are called to follow him in obedience through the humility, even when it seems ridiculous, dropping our walls and taking a step of faith. Let's pray towards that. Dear Lord, we see what you have done. We see the amazing things you're doing around us, how lives are being transformed, how schools are being improved, how neighborhoods are being cared for. God, we are ready to be used by you. We are ready to listen to listen to your voice and the words you have for us. We're ready to wait for your call to action. We're ready to follow, to go where you would have us take us. We're ready to trust you and to step out of our comfort zones. Lord, we're ready to walk with you. We are ready this evening, Lord. So come and guide us. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.